I think just like the teenagers of the 1940s and 50s, we need to look for fashion role models. And there aren't that many out there. So if, if you can find one that, that appeals to you, whose style appeals to you, whose body and age maybe is something you can relate to, that's a good shortcut just to say, okay, what are they wearing and how can I, how can I translate that to my life and my budget? Welcome to Zestful Aging, where I speak with fascinating change makers from all over the world who will inspire you to live with zest. I'm your host, Nicole Christina, psychotherapist and fellow Zestful Ager. My new tagline is discovering your sweet spot, both because I love a good tennis reference and because this show is all about growing into ourselves as we age. And to find out more about this podcast, hop on over to Zestful Aging. And while you're there, sign up for my weekly email newsletter, The Insider, where you will get behind-the-scenes looks at our guests and other fun and sometimes quirky tidbits. And if you love the podcast, I'd be so grateful if you shared it with your friends. Our music is courtesy of Judy Banker, who was a previous guest on the show. Find out more about Judy Banker at her website, judybanker.com. And our technical director is none other than Steve Litweiler. Well, this uh, episode is going to be really fun as well as educational. Do you ever wonder where fashion styles come from? For example, who invented skirts and why? The history I've recently learned, the history of fashion is fascinating and is influenced by a number of different factors. Today we're going to speak with the authority on fashion to find out about fashion that works for us. We're going to talk about timeless style and how to make it your own. Dr. Kimberly Chisman Campbell is an award-winning fashion historian, curator, and journalist based in Los Angeles. She's written for Politico, Slate, and the Wall Street Journal, has appeared on NPR, the Biography Channel, and Reels. And as well as writing books and articles, she does writing, lecturing, curating, and consulting for museums, universities, and the entertainment industry. She's written all about fashion, art, and culture for the Atlantic and the Washington Post. So today we're gonna to talk to her about her brand new book, Skirts, Fashioning Modern Femininity in the 20th Century. Welcome to the show, Kimberly. Thank you, Nicole. Thanks for having me on. I really enjoyed your book. I was, as we talked earlier, I was so uh, taken by sort of the the detail of the history. Um, and I just could only imagine that it took you a long time to get all of those pieces. Yes, I've been writing about fashion history for a long time, but I've, I've focused on much earlier periods in the 20th century. And it's funny to even call that history since it's something we all remember experiencing or many of us remember experiencing. Mm. And, and, and I think we remember it incorrectly in some cases. It was interesting to go back to it and, and look at it from a more historical perspective. Yeah, I, I was fascinated. I mean, I don't know that many people I don't know that most people like think about, you know, you talked about the Grecian statues and how uh, things flowed on the body and different designers and how they even 
conceptualize dressing a woman. I, I found it really fascinating. So I'm sure you get this question a lot, but were you a fashionista as a little girl? You know, I've always been a big fan of dresses, for sure. Uh, and I think I, as a kid, I, I thought maybe I wanted to be a fashion designer. I was really interested in fashion history, but I didn't really know what to do with that until I got a bit older and learned that fashion museums and fashion curators were a thing. Mm, I see. Did you grow up in, in the L.A. area? I did, yeah. So I remember going to LACMA uh, and seeing fashion exhibitions there uh, pretty pretty early on in my life. Uh, but then I didn't quite connect that you could do that as a job until I got to college. You have some really amazing training. I was looking at your website. You, you know, you, you're fluent in French. You've studied overseas. I mean, you really have such a broad understanding of uh, of fashion and and all that it entails, all the factors that go into it. It's, it's a great uh, field of study because it is so interdisciplinary, and it's a great way of looking at women's history, which often isn't recorded in more traditional sources. Mm -hmm. We talked earlier about the strapless dress, and that was one example that was really fascinating. You take the... Um, uh, sort of the how shall we say how the coming out of the strapless <laughs> dress and what that meant culturally and what it, it how it involved could you tell us the story of the strapless dress yes well the strapless dress was first invented in 1934 by a Chicago-born Paris couturier named Mainbacher or Mambochet, as he was known in Paris. And at the time it came out, it wasn't considered particularly sexy, uh, like we might think of it today. It was something very high-tech and very elegant and very expensive. It was, you know, new technology. And it was something that you really needed a certain amount of confidence and a, and a certain kind of figure to wear. And it immediately became adopted by debutantes in the U.S., and was associated with them for many years before it sort of got picked up by teenagers going to their first prom. So it was sort of you're, you're coming out as a grown up and this was your first grown up dress, your, your first big debut into the world, whether you were actually making a debut as a debutante or you were just a teenager, you know, going to your first formal event. Mm. Mm -hmm. And there needed to be some fabric that was designed to keep everything sort of in place. Well, there was boning in it. Uh, so you had a built-in understructure. And when we say bone, we're talking about whalebone, which is not, of course, a, a hard bone, but the baleen from a whale's mouth. Now, it's very interesting when you're looking at the history of the strapless dress because they talk about using whalebone, but at that point, it might have been plastic. It might have been something else, not traditional whalebone from a whale. Uh, but by that time, the, the word had become generic for any kind of a boning you would put in a dress, whether it was a feather or it was a man-made material. So there was definitely an understructure. Later on, you got the Merry Widow corset, which was a strapless corset that you know allowed you to wear a dress that was uh, had a low back. So all these different types of underwear were introduced and, and understructures were introduced to keep these dresses up. <laughs> I see, and in place. So what happened? I was really interested to see what happened kind of 
and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, sort of class-wise with this strapless dress. So it starts as this elegant, expensive, debutante dress, and then all of a sudden, high school girls are wearing it. So what does that do to its reputation and its its value? Well, in the 1930s and 1940s, there weren't a lot of clothes for teenagers. You either dress like a little girl or you dress like a grown-up woman. And even into the 50s, uh, teenagers were just sort of becoming a force in the market because of the baby boom, the war years. Had, there was an explosion of a younger generation. The population of young people soared, and they needed something to wear. They didn't want to look like their moms anymore. So they were looking for fashion role models, and debutantes who were in the paper, who were the celebrities of the day, mm-hmm. were that fashion role model. And one debutante in particular, Brenda Fraser, who made her debut in 1938. Uh, we've all heard the term celebutante to talk about Paris Hilton. Yeah, I was just thinking Nicole that. Yes, yeah, yeah. so other, other people we we know today, but that term was made up for Brenda Fraser because she was just really famous for being famous. She was just a rich girl who (laughs) dressed well. And she became a celebrity because she was always photographed wearing her strapless dresses and she was very media savvy when sort of get get out and mm. and get herself before, photographed. Before internet, it's hard to imagine. Uh, but she did not do well as the years went on. No, she had sort of a sad life after that. She she married a football hero and they got divorced and her her fame only carried her so far. Mm-hmm. It's, it's interesting and some interesting parallels uh, into some of the uh, women that we follow today. Hi, everyone. You may have noticed that Zestful Aging Podcast does not run a lot of ads. That's because I'm just not willing to endorse products that I don't have total confidence in and that I don't use myself. So it really means something when I tell you that after I interviewed Dr. Bill Rawls on cellular health, read his books, and learned about his high standards for quality control, I was sold. I placed an order for Vital Plant Supplements immediately. I encourage you to check out both of my interviews with Dr. Bill Rawls and hop on over to vitalplan.com. If you enter Zestful 15, they will give you a 15% off of your first order. I'm really excited for you to try these products. I think you'll be very impressed. Now, back to the show. So one thing I was delighted to find out was that tennis uh, was a sport that had a, a huge influence on fashion. That's right. Tennis is one of the oldest sports played by women. And since it began, or the modern game began in the late 19th century, it has been co-ed and women have worn skirts to play it. And I think that's one of the reasons why tennis players still wear skirts today, because it has a long tradition and because it's what they've always done. Mm-hmm. And I, as a tennis player, I will say it's, you know, as you get older, it's not always the... <laughs> 
favored outfit. But you're right. I mean, culturally, if you went in, and some people do, you know, with leggings or something, you really look at a place. So it, it's it's always interesting, you know, what culture you're in and what's acceptable and what's not. So there was a tennis player who was a bit radical and said, I'm not going to wear a corset while I'm trying to run down balls. That's right. That was Suzanne Langlet. And she also wore a short skirt, which in those days meant just below her knee. That was extremely short for the time. Of course, today, tennis fashions no longer dictate hemlines. But back in the days when women were wearing long skirts, tennis players were the first ones to say, hey, can we go a bit shorter? And mm. these professional players became fashion influencers both on and off the court. Mm -hmm. And we know who uh, who's the biggest one. And we've got Serena with her cat suit. And That's you right. talked about her cat suit. And for the for for people who aren't totally into this, it was correct me if I'm wrong, Kimberly, a one piece sort of a, um, spandex black uh, outfit. That's Did I get right. that right? Yeah. Yes, and she wasn't the first player to wear a cat suit on the court, but she sort of stood up and said, hey, it's okay to do this. And she was actually doing it for medical reasons because she had just had a baby and you know, needed some extra support to avoid blood clots. But of course, she won most of her 23 grand slams in a skirt. And mm -hmm. her sister Venus has talked about, you know, we, we know Venus and Serena could probably win a grand slam wearing just about anything. <laughs> uh, but Venus has talked about how much she enjoys playing in a skirt and, and how it gives you something that, that shorts or a catsuit doesn't. And she has her own fashion uh, line. I think it's called Eleven. Is that... Is that That's right? right. And Suzanne Langlin, Helen Willis, many tennis players over the years have gone into fashion because they were so influential and because they were so interested in designing not just clothes for the tennis court, but sportswear to wear off the court. Yeah, that you talked about uh, its athleisure. Is that is that the right word? We would call it that today. But mm. back when Chanel and Batu were doing it, it was called sportswear. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um that's a whole thing, right? I mean, especially with the pandemic, the whole <laughs> idea of fashion is is really changed. What what are you noticing? Well, as soon as the pandemic happened, I started getting calls from journalists saying, "What does this mean for fashion? And what mm -hmm. what is this going to do to fashion?" And I I always said, and I I think I was right, uh, that it would have two effects. Uh, it would go both ways. In other words, uh, people would look forward to dressing up again and being very over the top. And in fashion, we're seeing a real maximalist period uh, where people are going out with loads of fabric and loads of glitter and <laughs> just really uh, enjoying dressing up again. Mm -hmm. But of course, the opposite extreme was also true, especially in the workplace where people got used to wearing stretchy clothes <laughs> on Zoom and mm -hmm. don't necessarily want to go back into power suits and ties and heels and things like that. So I think the workplace culture has changed a lot, but perhaps the red carpet has become even more extreme and over the top. I, I see sort of polar opposites. So speaking of comfort, you proclaim yourself to be a, a, a serious skirt wearer. Uh, you love skirts. Tell us about the skirts. I, I pretty much only wear skirts these days. I mean, I have a couple pairs of pants if I really need them. Um, you know, I live in Los Angeles. It doesn't get very cold, so that's not really a concern. But also as a historian, I appreciate uh, 
the history of tailoring and and why white pants don't really work on women's bodies the way we would all like them to. Mm-hmm. Uh, if if you can find a pair of pants that fits you and looks good, more power to you, wear it. But it's very hard to do, and there there are historical reasons for that. And if you look at men's pants, you'll notice they come in a much wider range of styles than anything for women does. Uh, you have an inseam measurement, you have a waist measurement, you have dozens of combinations of these that just don't exist in traditional women's sizing uh and and that's that's a bit different if we're talking about jeans often you can get jeans with a waistband and an inseam measurement for women but unlike men most women don't have straight up and down figures we also mm-hmm. have a hip measurement to worry about uh-huh. that men don't so much so you really need a third rail of sizing for the hips. Um, and, and many brands have tried to overcome this. Um, Not Your Daughter's Jeans, for example, is making jeans in a, a wider range of sizes, a wider range of shapes for your different figure mm-hmm. uh, issues. Uh, many jeans brands like Levi and Gap have, have tried to go the customization route and okay. actually do custom made jeans. And it, it really just didn't work financially for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so people have have tried to overcome this, and I don't think we're quite there yet. Mm-hmm. I've I've had that problem all my life having hips, and so you have like a foot of fabric around your waist, and the hips just fit. You know, <laughs> right, right. If the waist fits, the hips don't. Right, right. And and here's here's uh, I don't know if it's a, a dirty little secret. I don't think jeans are that comfortable. I think now that the, we've gone through the pandemic, a lot of people would agree with you. I I never found them particularly comfortable, and sitting at home in front of your computer in jeans or hard pants, as many people people call them today, uh. <laughs> is is not the way to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think what what jeans and and other fashions uh, that we think of as being comfortable give us is psychological comfort. And when you're out in public, jeans allow you to be anonymous. They allow you to be uh, you know, prepared for different kinds of activities and physical conditions. When you're sitting at home in your office or in your dining room, uh, you don't really need that. You're alone. Nobody's looking at you. You're, you're, the social aspect of jeans is taken away and you're just left with the fact that these are not very comfortable to sit around mm-hmm. in. And you just go for the same yoga pants day after day. <laughs> that's right. Or a skirt. Skirts are great for sitting around. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, so, uh, you know, this is a podcast that really seb- uh, celebrates uh, women um, as they age, as we age. And I think many women are a bit confused about how to dress now. Um, the good thing is, you know, we're saying, oh, I don't really care if you like it or not. This <laughs> looks good on me. I'm comfortable. But I wonder if you could give some guidelines to us about how to find our own personal style um, that's more timeless. Yeah, I get asked about this a lot, and I, I I agree it's a problem. I think it's getting easier, um, thanks in part to online shopping, thanks in part to more inclusive sizing. I I think just like the teenagers of the 1940s and 50s, we need to look for fashion role models, and there aren't that many out there. So if if you can find one that that appeals to you, whose style appeals to you, whose body and age maybe is something you can relate to, that's a good shortcut just to say, okay, what are they wearing and how can I, how can mm. I translate that to my life and my mm. budget? Uh, 
uh, inclusive sizing is becoming much more of a thing across the board in fashion. So plus size, um, petite size, uh, having more options in terms of things that are flexible, maybe one size fits all or more adjustable. Uh, brands like Universal Standard, for example, are making the same dress in different sizes and different shapes, and you can you can buy them up to very large or very small. Mm-hmm. So it, it's getting better. I mean, that's that's the most encouraging thing I can say. But but yes, it, it is a problem, and I I think a lot of us sort of tend to fall back on what's familiar, what's comfortable. What's familiar and comfortable ten years ago, though, is not necessarily what you should be wearing right now. Mm-hmm. Would you say it takes a bit of trial and error and maybe even a little risk and maybe some courage to say, let me try this. I've never tried this before, but it looks fun. Of course, but I would say don't feel like you have to do that alone. Uh, Something else that I wrote about during the pandemic was online stylists. Uh, Nordstrom, for example, has a free online styling service where you can just go in on the, the app and pick a stylist and say, I want something that I can wear to, you know, a party or wear to work, uh, give them your size, maybe tell them a few brands you like, and they'll come up with some options for you and you don't have to buy them, but it's a great way to get an outside perspective on what, what should I be wearing or what's, what's more current than what I have in my closet that might work for me. I just want to go back really quickly to this role model idea. We're seeing a lot more women who are older, who have white hair, who are stylish in the media, but they're also very slender slash thin. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there, there's still a lot of fat phobia out there. And as I said, mm-hmm. inclusive sizing, inclusive models, you know, showing showing clothes on models your size rather than the stick thin model Mm -hmm. it's becoming more of a thing and i would say support the brands who are doing it you know look Mm -hmm. for that and celebrate it uh hopefully it will grow it's because it's it's not all there yet but even some very high-end designers are now making up to size you know 16 which is not perfect but better than it was you know 10 years ago when they all stopped at size 10. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And older women have a lot of spending power. So it would seem that you, <laughs> the designers might, you know, catch on and really want to please, please uh, us in that demographic. Exactly. And I, I think for a lot of women who don't have, you know, the big budgets, that, that, that continues to be a struggle. But if you can afford Eileen Fisher, or if you can mm-hmm. afford some of the brands that are doing uh, clothes for for more mature bodies and lifestyles, Mm -hmm. uh, that's a great option for you. Mm -hmm. Eileen Fisher is also does some really interesting things with uh, environmental initiatives. And she's a big meditator and uh, she's an interesting person. What's this whole deal about the capsule wardrobe. What do you, how do you understand it? Do you think it's a good idea? What, there's a lot of talk about it. You know, I, I really love clothes um, too much to commit to a capsule wardrobe. <laughs> uh, I, I do tend to fall back on a capsule wardrobe if I travel though. I want to take 10 things that I could wear 50 like different interchangeable, ways. Interchangeable, yeah. Yeah. So if I think if you approach it that way as maybe, you know, I'm packing for a weekend away or a week away, what do I take? Uh, that That's a good way to envision what a capsule wardrobe might look like for you. Mm-hmm. I, I think, too, you need to invest in this capsule wardrobe. You can't just 
you know, go to Target and buy your capsule wardrobe. You need to buy good things that you could wear over and over and that aren't going to fall apart and aren't going to stretch out and are going to last you a long time. Because if you're buying less of them, you want to spend more and, and, and really up your game. Talk to me about quality. I mean, there's a lot uh, we know there's a whole other show about how quality is dropping and even in the thrift stores, the things are falling apart. What should we be looking for if we want to buy clothes that last, which is, of course, environmentally beneficial, and also, you know, look put together what what are the what are the things we should be looking for yeah it's, it's really hard to say because you, you can't even say like well only buy natural fibers because there's some great man-made fibers that are not bad for the environment and are going to last you a long time uh you can't say don't buy fast fashion because even fast fashion you sometimes you know find keepers that you can wear for years <laughs> mm. uh, there, there are a lot of other reasons not to buy fast fashion but yes in, in general i think uh one piece of advice i would give is learn how to sew um not because it's cheaper or easier than buying clothes it's not uh but it will give you a sense of what fabrics are going to do how how you can alter things or if you can alter things uh what what kind of uh, fabrics wash well, things like that, that will contribute to you having a more effective, more long lasting wardrobe. Mm -hmm. I see. And also as a knitter, you know, that is not an inexpensive hobby, but boy, that is a whole different feel to have high quality yarn on you're your right. body. You're right. Yeah. And you know, once upon a time, everybody knew how to sew. You were taught it in school. You probably made your own clothes or your kids' clothes. And we've lost those skills that came with knowing how to sew. You know, no, knowing, for example, if you buy something vintage, um, you know, is this going to fall apart on me? Is it going to smell weird? It, you know, is it going to wash well? <laughs> Can I alter it if I gain weight or lose weight? It, Knowing how to sew answers a lot of those questions for you and will help you be a much more effective shopper, even if you're not somebody who's going to sew, you know, regularly. Uh, get, getting to know some of the basics will help you plan your wardrobe and your shopping more effectively and get more for your money. I was thinking for those of us who don't have time or interest in sewing, does it make sense to find a tailor who would make you some nice pieces that are you know, basics and good quality fabric? Absolutely. Again, it's not going to save you money, but you'll end up with something that fits you perfectly and that you will love. And, and again, a lot of department stores have that service. You know, Nordstrom will put pockets in a dress for you if they doesn't already have pockets. Wow. And it's not very expensive. So I would say look into those kind of options within stores that you already shop at. But yes, if you've got a good tailor who can hem a pair of pants or who can, you know, take in something that doesn't fit you anymore or let out something that doesn't fit you anymore, uh, hang on to that person and, and you know, give them Christmas presents. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're I hard see. to find. They're valuable. <laughs> As as we sort of wind down, do you have any stories for us about how you consult with the entertainment industry and 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 how your work has contributed to you know their understanding of what fashion they need to be using for their project? 
Yeah, unfortunately, I can't talk, talk much about it because of non-disclosure agreements. I see. Uh, but often, oftentimes, I will give advice on, well, here's what people actually wore in the 17th century. Mm-hmm. And uh, often that advice is ignored, and that's okay. Um, but when fashion historians consult on projects like this, or historians of any kind can consult on projects uh, for the entertainment industry, I think the goal is to make choices and not mistakes. So you you know what the reality was, and you can decide whether you want to depart from it rather than just kind of making it up as you go along. Is that something that, I mean, I, I, I'm saying this assuming that the answer is yes, but when you watch a film and you see some like, uh, you know, in um, time, like cult, not culturally, but inappropriate choices for that time period, does that uh, rankle you at it, all? It used to. I've, I've gotten a bit more mellow about it because I know that it's not just about making a documentary or, you know, recreating history to the letter. Uh-huh. It's about character. It's about plot. It's about a color palette that yeah. you want to achieve. You know, you want it to look beautiful. Uh, it doesn't have to be historically accurate all the time. Um, mm, I see. You've been able to uh, kind of uh, overlook that. There, there are other things that annoy me more <laughs> than, than the costumes <laughs> being wrong. Let's put it that way. You know, there's a knitting store in Northampton, Massachusetts, that says they're the largest knitting store in the country and probably the world. It's called Webs, and I interviewed the owner a couple years ago. But their claim to fame was one of the uh, the workers knit the cardigan for the Mr. Rogers oh, wow. uh, film. Wow. Yeah, and so, of course, you know, they just look at that and they can recreate it. But that sounded pretty fun. I, I once had asked by Rolling Stone if I could uh, date uh, Kurt Cobain's vintage grandpa sweater that he wore on, oh. on uh, Unplugged. And, you know, he bought it at a vintage store in Seattle. We know where he bought it, but he, they wanted to know where it was originally made and oh. uh, when it was originally made and how much it cost. And I thought, this is crazy. And I'm never going to be able to do this. And I actually did. Oh, um, really? Yeah, using old um, issues of GQ and Esquire, uh, looking at the ads. Um, there were, there was a very specific time period when men's mohair was very popular. Uh-huh. Um, and they, they, they had they had the label and th- there were a few different um, the, the, the label was Manhattan. So that that covered a few different brands. But there, I found, you know, an ad for that particular Manhattan and it had some prices on it. So uh, it, it, it could be done, but it, it was not easy. Wow, boy, talk about detail. Is uh, Do you use, how does it go? Um, do you m- use mostly internet or do you go to libraries? Where Where is this information coming from? Again, you know, a lot more is on the internet than used to be. Sure. Um, you know, the Esquire database, the Vogue database, I can get all that online. Mm. Um, I do try to go back to the the original source whenever possible. So for skirts, I used a lot of newspaper.com searches. Uh, so I could go mm-hmm. back to, you know, regional newspapers in 1934. What were they saying about the strapless dress? Because mm-hmm. they weren't saying this is so sexy. They were saying, isn't this elegant? And look at the technology. And and because all of these dresses that I talk about and all these skirts that I talk about in my book are still with us, we tend to see them through our own 
uh, contemporary eyes and not see them as they might have been seen at the time. The little black dress, for example, we might think of something really short and sexy that you'd wear to a club. The original little black dress was nothing like that uh, when, when Chanel first brought it out. Uh, so you have to go back to the eyewitnesses who wrote about it and thought about it and, and, and wore it at the time and find out what they were thinking because it's not what we think. I, I, I really found it entertaining and amusing that you put in some uh, little blurbs about how the designers weren't always, um, how shall we say? democratic and friendly. <laughs> uh, it sounds like you got to know some of them and their reputations. Yeah, they, they weren't all very nice people. And and also, if you if you go back through, you know, old Vogue's and old fashion magazines, they're saying horrible things like if, if you weigh more than 120 pounds, don't you dare go out in pants? Because oh. You'll look like a cow. <laughs> my, wow. my editor actually came back to me and said, could you could you contextualize this a bit more? So people know that this is what Vogue was saying at the time and that I we don't agree try. with this today. Yeah, <laughs> they, oh, well, they did say so some shocking things. <laughs> yeah, it's so interesting to follow that just culturally how that's been. Um, wow, it just sounds really fun. Sounds like you're, you know, you're on a uh, just this kind of quest to understand like the origins and, and what I found as a clinical social worker too is that these external events like the war, like, uh, like, uh, sort of the, the growth of the baby boom or the growth of suburbs, all this stuff really had an influence on, on fashion. I never imagined. That's right. You can't separate the fashion from the history. And it, it's a bit hard to see it when you're living through the history. But I think 10, 20 years from now, we'll look back at this time period and be able to say, oh, that's why that happened. Mm -hmm. I, I would wonder what people will say about our fashion now or our lack of I, I i don't know lack of clothes <laughs> it's mostly how little clothes you can get away with <laughs> yeah that's something well this is just so uh such a fun topic where can people find out more about you have a lot of books and you have all kinds of articles and um and then your newest book skirts is out where can people find out more yeah, well, Stuart's is my fifth book, and I also write a lot for magazines and newspapers, so that's all online. I have a website that will give you links to a lot of my work. And I'm also on Twitter uh, at Hotty Couture, H-O-T-T-Y-C-O-U-T-U-R-E. Ah, I love um, it. And that's probably where I, I post the most. I have an Instagram account and a Facebook account, too, but, but mm. Twitter is where I spend most of my time. Okay. Um, and it's uh, Kimberly Chrisman Campbell. I will put all of that in the show notes. And uh, thanks so much for the tips, the advice, and, and just a little taste of, of your world. Fascinating. Thank you, Nicole. It was fun talking with you. Thank you so much for joining us on Zestful Aging. If you like the podcast, please share it with some of your friends. If you think decluttering could help you feel better and you could use a little assistance with that, check out the online course I've developed with professional organizer and designer Carrie Luteran. It's called Too Much Stuff. 
And too much stuff is different from other courses or articles or guidance you may have used up. We give you clear steps to deal with the clutter and the tools to help you face the overwhelming feelings and the emotions that come up when we're going through our clutter. And a lot of those emotions are just feeling anxious or guilty or just basically flooded with a lot of different confusing feelings. The course is really practical. It's realistic. The lessons are short and punchy, and they're really manageable. We're not trying to set you up for some long, exploratory, you know, super in-depth, burdensome experience. We want something really helpful for you right now. We all need help with our anxiety. So, Being surrounded by more calm and less chaos can really help. So now's a good time to clear out the clutter so we can focus on what's really important in our lives. So find out more at zestfulaging.com. You'll see more about this under the web courses tab. If you have any questions, just shoot me an email at zestfulaging at gmail.com. Thanks so much. And stay tuned next week for another interview with a fascinating and inspiring guest.